So this is Fun Reason Radio, and today's guest speaker will have James Marks, co-founder and CEO of Weeplash, which was recently acquired by Port Logistics Group. In this episode, of course, we're going to talk about this acquisition. How can startups get acquired? How do you get to this stage where you can get acquired? Who should expect an exit? And also successful founders as a source of capital. So we're listening to the end to listen to all the great advice that James is going to give us today. So James, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Weplash. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is James Marks. I'm the co-founding CEO of Whiplash Merchandising. And, uh, you know, that was a company that we started about eight years ago. And, uh, you know, we started with some friends, ended up bootstrapping to number 457 on the Inc. 5000, went through 500 startups as a kind of fully grown uh, company six years in, and then ultimately raised some venture capital and, and acquired were acquired about a year later. Um, so it's like a long story with a tight ending that makes it sound mm-hmm. real fun and sexy. Yeah, it, it really, that's that's one of the reasons why you're here today, you know, because the story sounds so sexy. <laughs> and so what but, I hope that we talk about a little bit is how it's actually not that sexy and there's like years <laughs> going by where it's just like, yep, just build a bit old-fashioned way. Oh gosh, yeah. Uh, I actually got plenty of complaints that some of the content that I'm producing is too dark because, you know, I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything here. It's educational, so I'm trying to, to show people what's the real fundraising process looks like and it's not like in Silicon Valley. Uh, the yeah. show and so yeah James let's get to the darker side tell us how how rough was it how, for how long were you bootstrapping again so we bootstrapped it was about five or six years oh my god mm-hmm. and it was um when I say bootstrapped we started the company because the my co-founder Sean and I we were broke you know we we <laughs> needed to make more money than we were <laughs> He was sort of at a moment in his life where he was um, he was tour managing for Modest Mouse, which was a huge deal. I was a fan of Modest Mouse. I'm sure there's gonna be some fans uh, listening to this. So it was a huge deal that we were a part of this world. But like when he was off tour, you know, he needed a job, and so mm-hmm. that was kind of our our founding moment. And so starting a company when we are broke, don't have money to invest ourselves, um, you know, we we I think bootstrapping is is a pretty accurate term. That sounds pretty accurate. So why did you decide to bootstrap if you were broke, if you couldn't really invest in your own company? Why did you decide to take this path? Why didn't you try to you know, build a really, really tiny MVP, try to get some traction and then actually try to fundraise or even get a loan? I mean, we, we kind of did. I mean, it's it's a weird thing when you're building. I feel like you have to be very, very micro because you're you have to have a real problem that you're trying to solve. You have to know mm-hmm. what that problem is. But you also have to have a sense that it could be a big business and that you're making decisions that are going to flow into that larger thing. But I think if you are just trying to start a giant company without getting into like the micro problem, then it it doesn't work because it doesn't, you don't have something to focus on. And so, you know, our founding moment was, okay, Modest Mouse wants us to run a web store for them. And that's our, that's our thing. We're going to make that web store run really well. And Mm -hmm. What we found, like at the time when we started the company, we thought we were just going to be like licensing band merch and Modest Mouse was going to be the first band that we were working with. And we're going to use them as a marquee client for other bands. And it it did work to a degree. But once we were in there actually servicing their store and building this thing in Shopify and shipping these like t-shirts and records, 
we were shocked by how hard it was on just like the actual shipping side. <laughs> and so we were, and so we we're like, okay, clearly we are missing something here. And so we asked our, some friends of ours who are running record labels, you know, like, what are you guys doing? Like, what are we supposed to be doing here? And they're like, oh, it's called fulfillment. And there's a bunch of companies do, do, do this. And they pretty much all suck. Like for a variety of reasons, <laughs> some of it's tech, okay. some of it's just like poor operations. And so, so that was one of those moments where you're like, okay, our friends are all saying this is harder than it should be. And, <laughs> and sort of offering, you know, Hey, if you want to make a play here, like it can't, our situation can't be much worse. So why don't you, if you want to try to fix it, then, then you're welcome to. And so mm. those, uh, I love when the stakes are low like that and it's already <laughs> kind of broken and it's already, they're doing a terrible job. And I'm like, well, I can do better than a terrible job. <laughs> that's, that's the attitude. That's a, a real entrepreneur. I can do a little bit better than horrible, you know? <laughs> yeah. The, the bar is so low. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah. So how much in total do you raise throughout the, the, the layer on rounds? Uh, through all of the rounds, which are mostly in the end, it was about 1.2 million. Nice, nice. So why did you decide to raise at the very end? What, what happened there? So we, I guess through the, the course of running that company and sort of my transition from being a, just like a small and medium business entrepreneur, I think my skills came up and, you know, we had gotten a third co-founder involved who was um, an engineer and my engineering skills kind of came around around that time. And so it just had this idea that it could be much larger, but we were also always as much as we were trying to make money, we were pretty conservative about, about what we took out. And so we were always, you know, investing and growing the business. And, you know, it was always, you know, one more warehouse or one more engineer or one more whatever hire to, mm -hmm. to kind of solve the, the days, that day's problems. And, you know, venture capital is really alluring for that kind of model where you've got growth, you want to grow fast and, you know, to banks showing them, a six month old or even like a two year old profit and loss statement that just shows you're hemorrhaging money. Mm -hmm. you know, no, no bank is going to touch that. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. So let's talk about the, the fun part, maybe uh, the exit. <laughs> how did it happen? How, how, how did you get acquired? Did you just, you know, get one uh, request and you were like, okay, we'll, we'll go with this. Or was it like a loan negotiation? How, <laughs> I wish I had a process of how to sell a company. I, I don't have that to share, unfortunately. Um, but I can tell you our story. And yeah, sure. It's, it's one way that a deal could work. Um, so I would say right around the time that we were raising money and in the, in the moment that you're raising, you have a little bit more of a public profile where you're trying to be seen in the press. You're trying to, mm -hmm. you know, I get a lot of referrals from customers floating around just because you need to kind of demonstrate that traction. So I think it's a focusing moment to raise money. And so in that whole process, um, a friend of a friend had introduced me to the person who would end up being the advocate uh, at Port Logistics Group who would end up acquiring us. Mm -hmm. And so this is years before the acquisition. He and I met. We actually um, met in Michigan, kind of far from where either of us were living at that time, and took a tour of our warehouse. We had this one tiny little scrappy warehouse. <laughs> and because I had never seen a port logistics facility at that time. And like uh -huh. the, these are massive, like 800,000 square foot facilities they run. Ours was like 15,000 square feet, the size of like a four car garage. Right. <laughs> and so there was just a disconnect and it was so early for us. Um, and so at that time it was a, you know, basically it was like a review and they passed and cause mm -hmm. it was just, it was just too early. 
And then what ended up happening was after we had raised our seed round, we got into trouble with the state of California. Um, we had, didn't have the right insurance in place. There was like a action taken against us. It got Why? Well, I don't want to go into all the details, but we weren't compliant on some pretty basic stuff that we should have been. And mm-hmm. it was one of those things, I think when we were really early, we had a vague sense that we were supposed to buy this insurance and we didn't um, just because it was too expensive. And then we forgot about it for literally years. <laughs> Until we had amassed this huge liability, this like this like moment where you look at this letter from the state and you're like, "Oh God, this will we're out of business." Like as of the moment that I received this letter, we're bankrupt. Um, and so, because we had just raised venture capital, we were actually in like a weird place where maybe we could find a way to thread the needle. And in that moment of it was such a weird place because publicly. You know, the story was that we had just raised and we're going, we had just grown out of 500 startups and we're doing really well. But then privately, we're dealing with this sort of existential crisis, Mm -hmm. plus all of the problems that high growth, you know, naturally, you know, all your systems are kind of breaking down and everything. Um, So in this, this kind of dark moment, I called, you know, the guy from Port Logistics Group who we had had a good relationship, but it was the wrong time and said, hey, here's our situation would you be interested now that we're a little bit grown up and maybe it's a better match? Would you be interested in taking another look? And ultimately from there, it still took a year and a half to get all of that sorted out and get everyone comfortable. But that is ultimately the kind of the crystallizing two moments, that first meeting where it was a friend of a friend. And then that second meeting where our back was against the wall and we need, we needed help. Mm -hmm. So how do you, I'm just curious now, how do you get out of that uh, action with the, with the California? We paid them a ton of money. You know, we nice. were able to negotiate it down. We had to finance some of it through the acquisition. There was a lot of tap dancing to get it to work. And it was it kind of ruined that year. But <laughs> um, it, we were able to turn it into, you know, something positive for, for the founders and, um, and for those early employees. So I think the other thing that was happening is, by the time that moment came about, we were on like year eight and kind of wanted out anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I think from that degree, waiting all of those years to raise, even though we had built a nice company, we're building a company that whole time. I think it was probably wrong to raise capital when we were ready to sunset the idea and just kind of ready to move on with our lives. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs talk about it take, takes 10 years to build a company. Mm-hmm. And so we're on like year eight when we're like recommitting and doubling down. <laughs> because yeah. Of it. God, but it's still, still a wonderful story. I mean, you managed to get out of a lawsuit from a California state and it's, it's great. It's great. You know, that's, that's what startup life is about. I always say that like the, the best part about startup world is that you can screw up on any stage of building your company from the very <laughs> beginning to the very, very, very end, you know, but do you still count that the acquisition was successful, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, it, it is a forgiving community in, in that regard. Not that anyone is condoning illegal <laughs> behavior. Yeah. That was certainly never the message we got was, <laughs> Oh, great job. They were like, what have you done? You know, it was never, oh, God. Um, it was like, what have you done and how are we going to get out of this? Um, mm-hmm. Certainly no one was patting us on the back for finding ourselves in that position. And to mm-hmm. be clear, it was an oversight. You know, I can trace it back to a moment where we let it be deprioritized and then it went dormant for years and it just kind of came back to haunt us. 
this is exactly why I'm releasing some educational episodes on the legal side of fundraising because sometimes that happens. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I think, yeah, I think that there's a fundamental thing that I've tried to correct for myself. Like as an entrepreneur, you by definition have a uh, high comfort with risk, maybe too high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So people around you who are not risk uh, tolerant like that. And, you know, that's where you have bankers and insurers and people like that who force you to take some of those things seriously, that there's just no reason not to take like a cautious approach approach on insurance. Right. Um, right. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, that's for sure. So uh, now let's move on probably to even a happier part. What are you doing now when you sold your company? What's going on now? Yeah, so we um, we were incentivized to stay uh, at Whiplash for for a mm-hmm. while, and I'm actually just wrapping that period up. And I'm thinking a lot about what I'm going to be doing next. Um, it could be could be venture backed. It could be um, could be not. I want to make sure that um, whatever I end up doing that venture is the right answer. Sometimes I find myself, there's all these types of things in the world that venture isn't appropriate for. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to open like a cafe, that's not venture, right? Yep. Or if you're going to open like a garden center, that's not venture. And, th- and those are great, interesting, valid businesses. Um, there's all of these things to meet requirements of venture capital that turn it into a certain kind of idea that gets, that gets through. And um I'm actually kind of battling that myself of if I want to accept those, those constraints. And the other part of it is that it puts someone else in control of your destiny, right? You're asking permission in a sense from venture capitalists, like, may I do this thing? And that is just fundamentally the wrong way for an entrepreneur to look at the world. Good point. That's a good point. So here I want to talk a little bit about uh, successful founders being and source of capital or maybe advisory to younger, earlier stage founders. So do you invest as an angel investor in any startups? Uh, I, I could uh, review pitches periodically. I, I haven't seen anything yet that I'm personally convicted yet. I have like no deal flow personally, I, mm-hmm. maybe a couple, um, in which case I was actually in conflict because of my position at Whiplash still. And mm-hmm. so deals that I might've done, I, I can't do right now. Um, I do think, especially if you've got entrepreneurs who know the space that you're trying to tackle and can see can see the problem in a way that other people might, I think that's probably the best way, the best type of founder to approach. Because right. the other thing about founders is that they know it can work sometimes. They also know how long, how likely it is that you'll fail. Yep, yep, yep. And that's that's exactly why I'm getting so many complaints about, about the I'm producing some dark content. You're the, the reason for that. So it, I'm, I'm, I'll blame it on you, okay? <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but seriously, uh, do you sometimes, so uh, a lot of founders get advice, like get some experienced founder on your board as an advisor, you know, so that once in uh, like two weeks or once even a month, you meet with him or her and you ask for advice, you check in, just oversee what's going on in the company and maybe he or she will give you some valuable advice. Do you do anything like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've got a few, um, you know, some of them are VCs. Some of them are just really smart people who I check in with regularly. You know, we have like standing meetings where we just kind of check in and part of it's just like friendship, right? Which Mm -hmm. is, I think, an important part of anything that you do. Absolutely. And then other parts of it are just like, hey, I'm thinking about this idea. You know, what are some of the like, what do you think of? Is there like a huge competitor in this space that I'm not aware of? That's an important thing to know. Um, 
and then just kind of workshop some of those ideas. It's I think there's some of that that's important. And then there's some of it where it turns into that thing where you're asking for, for permission and you have to make sure that you're not letting their advice take too much weight. Mm-hmm. I think as an entrepreneur, there is such a difficult blend of belligerence where you have to reject advice because the same thing is not to do whatever it is you're attempting. And then also listening really carefully to make sure you are getting advice and that you're not just acting out of some unhelpfully irrational point of view and that you're using some sort of empirical evidence that Mm -hmm. that your decision is based in. And I think that's actually one of the most difficult things. I've, I've been developing that personally for like 20 years and I still don't think I have it nailed. (laughs) When are you a jerk about it and, and stubborn? And when are you just like a rational? Oh, of course, that's a great point. I won't do that. That's, that's something I can never understand. I think I already just, you know, talked to myself a little bit. And I was just like, okay, just accept that fact that you can never understand if you're doing a horrible mistake, not listening to advice, or you're actually doing the right thing. So I was just like, all right, whatever, yeah. whatever think, my God feels. Yeah. And some of it, I think you do. I, I, I like the idea of taking it back to empirical evidence. Like I invested in whiplash, like for years, with mm-hmm. my time and energy because I could see something in the math that fundamentally worked. And so that I was making my conviction based on something that I saw in our numbers and this future, this future place where I'm like, maybe we're not there today, but I can draw this line and show that we're going to get somewhere good. And so I like to think that in my best moments, my belligerence is based on that empirical evidence and not just my gut, you know, or, or yeah. some, some irrational thought that I can't defend. And if I'm in a position I can't defend, I think I have to do that homework of making it defendable. Like maybe this is a gut maybe it's right, but then we got to take it back. We got to find something that is actually driving this. Maybe you're getting an intuition about something that is true and you got to figure out what that is that that intuition mm-hmm. is pointing to. Right, right. So here, let's talk more about some real things that can be measured, not a gut feeling. Uh, so let's talk about your advisory work as actual work. So do you get compensated for your advisory work or do you just do, you know, because you like it and because you just want to give back to community? Uh, I just, I just like it. Um, I don't do a ton, but I, I do a little bit. And mm-hmm. I enjoy getting to know people and kind of providing my my take on what they're experiencing. That that to me is super satisfying, and it could. Um, I think it's it's appropriate and often for that to be there to be a financial incentive because of my position and these re- industry related companies. I'm currently not being compensated because it mm-hmm. would be a conflict. Um, I think I think fundamentally it's probably a good idea because then you've got alignment and. Uh, as I generally try to rely less on altruism than, than, <laughs> you know, aligned incentives. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. So how should founders reach out to you and people like you? What, what do you think, what personally on you works? So I personally found you on Crunchbase then I reached out to you on LinkedIn and then followed up with an email. And I think you responded to the email. So is that the way that founders should reach out to you with uh, like requests for uh, becoming your advisor? I mean, becoming their advisor or yeah, a better way. It's it's tough to say because yours your path did work. It's it's less than one percent success rate. So like I delete almost everything out of hand. Um I feel really special now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I can, I'll speak to that. So what happened is I, I didn't recognize sure. the podcast, but I went and looked at some of the former episodes. Your guests were thoughtful and, you know, reasonable people that I was happy to be a peer of and you're a good interviewer. And so 
so I was able to say yes. And because it aligns with my personal need to get my name out there and self-promotion and all those things, I think it works. The <laughs> vast majority of the things you're competing against in are, you know, people selling products to CEOs and operations people. And those, right. it, me, like my inbox has turned into an advertising channel for them. And so <laughs> I would say that that fundamentally is broken and uh, almost because I want to demonstrate that it doesn't work. I don't allow it to work. That's, that's really reasonable. I actually, uh, so now I'm trying to reach out to more successful founders like yourself. And by the way, you just uh, boosted my ego, like huge. In deep <laughs> way. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to bring more founders like yourself who sold their companies before. And one, I re I reached out to one guy before and he was like, yeah, sounds good. I checked out some of your previous episodes. Look awesome. I would be happy to talk to you. Then we scheduled an interview. I mean, pre-interview call and then before he, uh, we jumped on a call he was like wait you're not gonna try to sell me anything right yeah I'm like, yeah. oh my god no <laughs> because yeah. it's it gets so many uh, so many requests like that and it's horrible like this and there's, there's so many and then it's like it's made my inbox a fairly unpleasant place to be to be honest i have a personal re rejection of advertising it just mm -hmm. it's just me and so uh I actually hate my inbox. I've thought about hiring somebody to manage my inbox just oh, to forward me the, the 5% of things that are relevant. Mm -hmm. um, I think that problem has gotten really pronounced in the last few years. Um, no, obviously, yeah. I do that at scale for, for the companies, but I'm, I'm considering doing it personally as well, just as a, mm -hmm. as a defense mechanism. Absolutely. I think it really everyone who's successful should hire an assistant, you know, part-time. But while you don't have an assistant, how should Foundry reach out to you personally? So as I understood, I think only warm intros from people you know work. Is that the only way basically to reach out to you? Yeah, warm intros work. You know, uh, warm intros absolutely work. Um, it's But it's also the kind of thing you've got to do it it's got to be respectful of, of everyone's time. It can't be mm -hmm. like a, a prey and uh, spray and pay prey campaign. Um, mm -hmm. It's got to be real. Right. But I think Absolutely. that is, that is totally effective. If anyone in my network who thinks it's worth my time, I will usually take the call because I know that they're putting themselves out on the limb and I'm, and, and I respect that as a signal of potential interest. Right, right. So now let's talk about something you mentioned earlier, and it is the Beach Deck review. You've seen plenty of them. You have analyzed them. You've decided if they're good or not. What do you think are the three must-have points on the Beach Deck? Uh, let's see. A, a clearly articulated problem and, and your solution is a big deal. Um, I'm going to steal one line from Elizabeth Yin, um, which is... She wants the problem stated in statistics, you know, both why the problem exists and also a quantified way in which your uh, product or offering is superior. And so you've got to do some kind of study or some kind of user data, preferably generated by you rather than looking at, you know, something that you can scrape off the internet. I think that's a big deal. And I think it focuses you to do the work behind that slide mm -hmm. to make sure that you're actually um, speaking about it intelligently. And then uh, I would say the other thing that I look for is a very strong distribution plan. There's a problem that I have and I watch a lot of founders have, which is a focus on product as opposed to distribution. And so anyone who's been in the industry for a while will recognize that great products fail all the time. 
and the th- and mm-hmm. mediocre projects do fine sometimes, which is kind of a bummer, but the truth, yep. what they have is distribution. And so when you talk about like, what is your unfair advantage or, you know, your secret sauce or whatever it is, a big part of that is how you're going to reach customers cost effectively and, and how are you going to scale that, right? Like, so what is it that you're doing today and what is it that you're going to be doing differently once I write you a check that, that shows us that, okay, this is, this is really going to dramatically change over the next period of time. That's a good point. That's a really good point. And I think here we came up to probably the last question of this episode, and then we'll wrap it up. And this is something that I'm trying to ask now all of my speakers, and it's call to action, basically. So once uh, the founder or whoever is listening to this episode is finished listening, what should he or she do like exactly once they're done? I mean, of course, they should hit uh, the previous episode and check out fundraising radio. But other than that, should they probably go on uh, LinkedIn and reach out to their old friend from college and like ask what's going on or uh, what, what, what specifically one specific thing, thing that they should do? One specific thing. Mm-hmm. I would say I, I've been into visioning right now. And so it's a very clearly articulated vision of how you see yourself in the future and like where you see the company and where, and just how you picture your entire life and how the whole thing fits together. And so the idea of visioning is usually a piece of writing and it's not necessarily going to get shared outside of yourselves, but it's getting a crystal clear vision of yourself. Like when you walk through your workday, who are you talking to? Where are you? What problems are you solving? Where do you, is your company like on a marquee somewhere? Is it the signature of some email product that everyone is using? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there is probably no replacement for that, getting that crystal clear vision in your head. And, and to me, that happens through writing. That's great. That's great advice, actually. I think writing is a, is a great tool. I mean, I write all the time. And whenever I'm writing something, it just helps me clear out my thoughts, you know, and then I just understand what's going on, you know, better. Yeah. 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 And you, you need a North star, you need a North star. And you've, yeah. I think writing can provide that. Right. 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 So I think we'll wrap it up here. I ran out of questions. I was, I came up with a question right before when you were talking about writing, but then I got distracted by listening to you and, and, and I forgot the question. So I think we'll wrap it up here. <laughs> Thanks a lot, James, for coming up and for sharing your experience and knowledge in this field. I think uh, this episode has really, a great story, ups and downs, everything that you are supposed to have in a real startup. So thanks a lot and stay safe out there. Thanks. You too. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.